a few years ago, country music legend Dolly Parton gave an interview in which she explained why she uses her celebrity platform to advance the cause of homosexual Americans. She said, quote, why wouldn't I stand up for everybody? In the country, we're brought up in spiritual homes. We're taught to judge not lest you be judged. And it's always been a mystery to me how people jump all over things just to criticize, condemn, and judge other people when that is so unchristian. And they claim to be good Christians. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to accept and love one another. Whether we do or not, that's a different story, but that's what we're supposed to do. End quote. I think this quote is a really good place for us to begin this morning because I think that this captures the way that a lot of people today, including many people inside the American church, think about the core of the Christian faith. It used to be that the most famous verse from the Bible was John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That used to be the way most people understood Christianity. That our faith at its core is about God the Father graciously giving up His Son Jesus to death so that all those who believe in Him will be freed from their sins and the penalty of their sins and receive eternal life. For a long time, most people understood that to be what the Christian faith is about, whether they were Christians or not. Because John 3.16 was everywhere. Right? It was on t-shirts and it was on coffee cups and it was on shopping bags. And at every football game you watch, somebody had a sign behind the goalpost that said John 3.16 on it. But today, many, many people don't understand Christianity or Jesus by thinking about John 3.16. Today, many people understand Christianity and Jesus by thinking about this verse that Dolly Parton just quoted. The verse we're going to take on today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. Today, this is how many, many people understand the true message of Jesus or the true message of Christianity. Not that Jesus is the God-man who has come to die and rise again to obtain a pardon for our sins and bring us eternal life, but rather, as Dolly Parton said, that Christianity is all about us really accepting and loving everybody. And if we should happen to not accept everything that everybody else does, if we should happen to talk about the reality and the awfulness and the just penalty of sin, then it is alleged that we have rebelled against the true message of Jesus. That is what many people today think. And this isn't just a problem in the unbelieving world out there somewhere. I have known many people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians who would espouse something very similar to this. And friends, if that's where you are this morning, if that's how you think about Christianity and Jesus, I want you to listen very closely to the rest of this sermon because this idea is false. This is a lie from the pit of hell. This is a cancer in the American church. This is a shocking distortion of the gospel and the Bible and the truth about Jesus. This morning, indeed, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But unlike what so many people do today, we are not going to wrench this one verse out of its context. We're going to look at Matthew 7, 1, all right, but we're also going to look at Matthew 7, verse 2, and verse 3, and verse 4, and verse 5, and verse 6. And when we look at all these verses together, we're going to learn two very important truths about believers engaging in judgment. The first truth we're going to see today is, yes, 
Jesus does give a profound warning against believers judging in certain contexts. And then second, we're going to see that, in fact, Jesus commands believers to judge in other contexts. And this morning we're going to learn when we must not judge and when we must judge. So let's start with our first point in which Jesus strongly warns believers against judging in certain contexts. Now, I just spoke pretty strongly against the way a lot of people talk about Matthew 7.1 today. But while Matthew 7.1 is not the core message of Christianity, I also need to tell you, this is a command of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is absolutely true and binding upon the people of God. So I don't want us to dismiss Matthew 7.1 just because our world has misinterpreted and abused this verse. We need to read Matthew 7.1. We need to rightly understand Matthew 7.1. And more than that, then we need to obey Matthew 7.1. So let's start again by reading this famous verse. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now what exactly does this mean? Well, the Greek verb translated judge is krino. And krino basically means to assess or evaluate something. Infrequently, crino means to form a personal preference, like judging hamburgers superior to hot dogs. Sometimes crino means making a decision between competing claims or arguments, like judging which candidate should I vote for. Crino can also mean evaluating a person's conduct and rendering a decision about them, like sitting as a juror in a criminal case. So when Jesus uses this verb here and then says, don't do it, don't judge, which of these meanings does he intend to prohibit? How can we know which kind of judging Jesus means to disallow? Well, look first at the immediate context of this command. Look at the way this sentence is built. The first half, judge not, is mirrored by the second half, that you be not judged. In fact, in the Greek, this is even clearer than it is in English. So Jesus wants us to understand this sentence as a whole. We've got to interpret the first half with the second half and in light of the second half. And in the second half of this sentence, Jesus talks about us being judged. Judged by whom? Well, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the judgment that Jesus talks about again and again is the judgment of God. One day, God will sit in judgment over every person who has ever lived. Some of God's judgments will be highly positive. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told us that the Father will one day reward believers. So we read in Matthew 5.12 that God gives rewards that are great in heaven to those who are persecuted for Christ's sake. Three times in chapter 6, we read that the Father will reward believers who practice their good works in a way that glorifies God. God's judgment can lead to believers receiving glorious rewards. However, some of God's judgments are quite negative. This is true first for believers, because we also learn in the Sermon on the Mount that just as God rewards His people, sometimes God withdraws rewards from His people when we fail to properly honor Him with our lives. We see this in chapter 6, where four times Jesus warns that those who do good deeds, which ordinarily would be rewarded, but when we do those rewards not intending to glorify God, but to get the applause of men, when we do that, we forfeit the rewards we otherwise would have gotten. That's a negative judgment. 
But as bad as that is, there is still a far worse judgment for those who have not entrusted themselves to Christ. Because God will eternally condemn those who do not belong to Him. They will face the just penalty that their sin has earned, which is the fearsome judgment of hell. Jesus talks about this in chapter 5, where He warns that even the smallest sin of insulting someone as a fool makes you liable to the hell of fire. So God is a fearsome judge. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, live in light of the truth of the judgment of God. And this is the judgment Jesus is talking about in the second half of verse 1. And Jesus says this judgment is triggered in part by us judging. Now, which kind of God's judgment is Jesus warning about here? Well, he's not warning us about getting eternal rewards. He's talking about the negative kind of judgment. Believers losing rewards. Unbelievers heaping up more condemnation on themselves. And Jesus says, if you don't want to receive God's negative judgments, then don't judge. Okay, but what does it mean not to judge? Well, if the word judge in the second half of this verse is talking about God sitting in judgment of us on the basis of our conduct... And based on ordinary hermeneutics, that's how we should understand this same word in the first half of the verse 2. So what I want you to understand right away is Jesus here is not forbidding us from forming judgments which are personal preferences. This isn't about us judging between hamburgers or hot dogs or Bible translations or any of a million other morally neutral preferences that we form. Neither is Jesus here forbidding us from using our reasoning to decide between competing claims or arguments or candidates. It's okay to decide one friend has the better side in a dispute than the other. It's okay to say one side has a better policy than another. That's not what this is about. The kind of judgment Jesus is warning about here is us sitting in judgment over another person as God will one day sit in judgment over us. Issuing verdicts of condemnation upon others, just like God will one day condemn. But wait, you ask, doesn't this then mean that our culture is right in how it interprets Matthew 7.1? Because God judges people as guilty of sin. So is Jesus here telling us not to form judgments that other people have sinned? When you see something that's contrary to the Bible happening around you, should you just sit down, shut up, and not get involved? Should we live and let live and smile a lot and be really nice and just say, well, God will sort it all out in the end? No. Why do I say that? Friends, if the only thing the Bible ever said about judging was Matthew 7.1, then yes, there would be an argument that Christianity tells us we should love and accept one another indiscriminately. But that is not the case. Because elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus' disciples are commanded to render judgments and make critical assessments about the conduct of others. Here are several examples. If you, they'll be on the screen, but if you want, follow along in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here believers are commanded to assess the spirits that stand behind the religious teachers that we listen to. And John gives believers a test to apply. Verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay? 
So John tells his readers, test your teachers by this standard so that you can discern, so that you can judge. Is your teacher from God? Should I listen to this man? Or is he from Satan? Should I reject him? In the same way, Paul wrote Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. This is a doctrinal test again, by which the Galatians are to judge their teachers. Is your message the same message that Paul taught us? If yes, then I should listen to you. If not, I should reject you. This is a command to judge. 2 Peter 2. And the book of Jude set forth other tests by which Christians are to judge their teachers. Not just doctrinal tests, but character tests. Moreover, Christians aren't just to judge teachers. There are times when we are called to render judgments on fellow believers. Paul talks about this very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there is a church member who is guilty of outrageous sexual sin. And Paul tells the church to expel this member from the congregation. And he says, listen to this very carefully. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul says there is a time for believers to judge other believers. And he describes this using the very same verb Jesus uses in Matthew 7.1. This is krino. Now you might say, well, wow, this sounds like a massive contradiction. Because Jesus says, judge not, but Peter and John and Paul and Jude tell us to judge. How do we figure this out? But wait, there's no contradiction here at all. Because Jesus himself tells believers that there are times when we need to judge. In John 7, 24, Jesus is talking to a crowd that is falsely accusing him. And Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus doesn't say, all judging is wrong, you judgmental people. He says, no judge, but judge righteously. We see a similar idea in Matthew 18, where Jesus tells believers the same thing Paul told the Corinthians. Sometimes it's necessary for church members to sit in judgment over fellow church members, to render decisions about their conduct, and sometimes to expel them from the church. That is a righteous judgment. In fact, in the very chapter we're studying right now, three more times in Matthew 7, Jesus will tell believers that we need to render righteous judgments about others. For example, Matthew 7, 15. Jesus tells his disciples that they need to judge who is a true teacher and who is a false prophet. And Jesus gives his disciples a test to apply. We'll see this in two weeks, God willing. Moreover, in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, which we'll look at in just a minute, Jesus again tells believers that there are times when we need to judge others. So, yes, Matthew 7, 1 sees Jesus warning us against sitting in judgment over others. And he says that triggers God's judgment. But the rest of this passage, the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book, and the rest of the Bible tell us there are many times when believers must render judgments about other people and their conduct. So, what should we conclude? Does Jesus shockingly contradict himself twice within six sentences? That doesn't seem very likely, does it? No, instead we need to understand that in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is telling us not to engage in certain types of judgments, in unrighteous judgments. And it is unrighteous judgment that triggers the judgment of God. Okay. 
But what sort of unrighteous judgment does Jesus mean to prohibit? Well, let's look now at the broader context of our passage. As we keep reading in chapter 7, Jesus now gives us more details so that we better understand exactly what he is prohibiting in verse 1. So verse 2, Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here Jesus teaches us a principle about how God judges, which is in part that God judges us with the same scrutiny and by the same standard with which we judge others. Now this is not the first time we've seen an idea like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said of believers, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. In chapter 6, Jesus said, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Later in chapter 7, Jesus will say, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is repeatedly drawing a connection between how we treat others and how we want to be treated and how we should expect to be treated by God. So believing, friends, if we have truly experienced the mercy of God that we claim to have experienced through the gospel, then we will be merciful people and we can expect to receive God's mercy on the last day. If we have truly experienced the forgiveness of God that we claim to have experienced in the gospel, then we will be forgiving people and we can expect to receive God's forgiveness on the last day. And to this now, Jesus adds, if we are people who are characterized by unforgiving and merciless and unrighteous judgment, then we can expect to receive God's judgment on the last day. And because this is true, we should not be hasty or eager to pronounce words of judgment and condemnation. Now, this is tough for me. I'm a pretty judgmental guy. I think this is tough for many of us in the evangelical church. Because some of us feel zealous for God's truth. And we get angry when we see evil around us. And this may make us feel justified complaining about everybody and everything that we see. Others of us are just natural complainers. But... If we're always hasty to judge everybody else for every little thing, we'd better watch out. Because Jesus says God one day will examine us with the same rigor by which we examined everybody else. Friends, God will examine us by our own judgmental attitudes. God will apply to us the harsh words we've applied to others. How will we measure up? Now, if you're honest, you probably don't like this idea very much. I know I don't. And the reason we don't like this idea is that we hold to double standards. We judge others by an exacting standard, while we judge ourselves by a lenient standard that usually lets us off the hook, right? And there's a term for this. It's called hypocrisy. And God hates it. And verse 2 is warning us that where we have formed these hypocritical judgments, condemning others while giving ourselves a pass for doing the same sorts of things, God will judge us by applying to us the rigid standard that we quickly apply to others. Now, all of this, I think, helps us better understand verse 1. Because we've said, because of the context of this passage, this chapter, this book, and the Bible, in verse 1, Jesus is not prohibiting us from forming moral conclusions about what other people do. Jesus is forbidding unrighteous judgment. And now we see in verse 2 what kind of unrighteous judgment Jesus has in mind. He is prohibiting hypocritical judgment. And I think we see this even more clearly as we keep reading in chapter 7. 
Because Jesus now gives us an illustration of the kind of judgment that he means to forbid. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Now this is a pretty grotesque illustration, but it makes Jesus' point. He says it's like we've got two people, and Jesus describes them as brothers. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about brothers, he's talking about how we deal with fellow believers. So we've got two believers. And one of them has a tiny speck, like a speck of sawdust, in his eye. And the other one has a log in his eye. And this isn't like a log like you put in your fireplace. The Greek term here refers to a very large, heavy piece of wood. The sort of thing you use as a beam to support a roof in a house. So one guy's got this tiny speck in his eye, and the other guy has this gigantic beam of wood planted in his face. And notice the disparity, right? One of these problems is a lot bigger than the other. So that's the setup. Somebody's paying attention. This is kind of funny. Now, what happens here? Jesus says, the guy with the beam says to the guy with the speck, I see you have something in your eye. Let me help you. It's a ridiculous scene. And it forces us to think about a few questions. Number one, if the guy with this beam is so concerned about eye health, why doesn't he deal with his own problem, right? And the answer's got to be he doesn't perceive his own situation correctly. The presence of the beam has caused him to miss the enormity of his plight. He has become blind to what's going on with himself. Second, because this guy's got a beam in his eye, how can he see what's going on with his brother's eye with any clarity? The answer is he can't, right? I mean, you got this thing taking up half your vision. You're going to see a little speck. The beam in his eye has distorted his own vision. And third, picture what happens when the guy with the beam in his face tries to clean the speck out of the other guy's eye. It's going to be like a scene out of a slapstick comedy, right? Oh, hold still, whack. You know, he's going to be beating him with this thing coming out of his face. It's a funny picture. But the truth here isn't very funny that Jesus intends. Because this is illustrating what Jesus is warned against in verses 1 and 2. We've got two Christians. One of whom has a large sin problem and the other one has a relatively small sin problem. Now yes, he still has a sin problem. He does have a speck. Listen to this. The issue is not that the guy with the larger problem is unrighteous in his judgment because he's falsely accusing his brother. That's not the idea at all. The brother is guilty. But what makes his judgment unrighteous is that the guy with the beam in his face is in hypocrisy. He has wrongly judged himself to be healthy because his sin has blinded him to his own condition. Jesus said something like this in chapter 6 about people who worship money. He says it's like they've got diseased eyes. Sin blinds us. And not only is this guy blind to his own problem, he has wrongly judged that he should be the one judging and helping his brother with the smaller problem. And this picture is cautionary. What Jesus is showing us here is this is going to prove disastrous because the unaddressed sin in the guy with the beam's life will corrupt and ruin his attempt to deal with the speck. He is going to leave his brother needlessly wounded. So what is Jesus' assessment of this pitiful scene? He says in verse 5, You hypocrite, judging and criticizing a fellow Christian for whatever sin we perceive to be unaddressed in his or her life. 
while we tolerate sin continuing unaddressed in our own life, makes us hypocrites. You may not realize that's what you're doing. Just like the guy with the beam doesn't realize the absurdity of his situation. This may be unintentional hypocrisy, but it is hypocrisy nonetheless. Hypocrisy means play acting, pretending to a righteousness that isn't real. And Jesus' use of this word is significant because it's a reminder of the truth of verse 1. Unrighteous judgment leads to God's judgment. And this word hypocrite is used throughout chapter 6 to speak of those who will receive a negative judgment from God, those who will forfeit rewards. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 20, the ultimate hypocrites, the Pharisees who pretended to obey God's law while violating it indiscriminately, they're said to be outside of God's kingdom. That is, they are going to hell. So being a hypocrite is not a small deal. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's talking to unbelievers who are hypocrites and he says, this is wicked and it gets God's judgment because it assumes that God is unjust and because it presumes upon God's kindness. That just because we haven't faced the judgment that our sin deserves at this point in time, we imagine God's fine with what we're doing and we can keep doing it. And Paul says this is all an expression of the vilest sin and hard-heartedness. So, we see the logic now of the first four verses. Don't engage in hypocritical judgment or God will judge you. Do not apply standards to brothers or sisters in Christ that you are not willing to live by. Do not form negative judgments about their conduct when you are happy to accept conduct in your own life that is every bit as bad, if not worse. If you are tolerating unaddressed sin in your life, don't be quick to pronounce verdicts and condemn others because that courts God's judgment. That's our first point. <clears throat> but now we come to our second point, and here we find... That nevertheless, Jesus does command his people to render judgments in certain contexts. A careful reading of verses 5 and 6 shows us three situations in which Jesus commands us to judge. <clears throat> the first two situations come from verse 5. And in verse 5, we're still in the world of Jesus' illustration of the man with the beam and the man with the speck. And Jesus says, you hypocrite... First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, the first situation Jesus commands us to judge is this. We've got to take the beam out of our own eye. That is, we need to judge ourselves. We need to address our own sin. Now, this does not sound fun, but it's necessary. And honestly, I think this command is very encouraging. Because there's a way that a lot of Christians think about our sin which can be really discouraging and imprisoning. I think it's easy for us to look at ourselves and say, wow, I, I have a lot of sin in my past and I still struggle with sin so much. I still fail to do what God wants me to do. I still do what God wants me not to do. And that's just outwardly. Inwardly, I've got all these motives and who knows how many of them are deceptive. And I am just swamped by sin. 
And we conclude that because of our past sin and our current battle with sin, that we have no right to ever speak to anybody else about their sin. That to do so would make us the hypocrites we've just read about. Then this whole thing becomes a sad excuse to turn inwards, get depressed, beat ourselves up, and ignore other people. But that is not what Jesus calls us to here. Yes, we've all sinned. I've got news. You've sinned a lot more than you know, and so have I. Yes, we all still battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, we all stumble in many ways, outwardly and inwardly. Yes, we will never attain sinless perfection in this life. And yet, Jesus still says, remove the log from your eye. I find that immensely encouraging. Because it tells us we can enjoy victory in our battle with sin. But these victories can begin only when we recognize that we have a problem. That we have a log. How can we discover our log, especially since I just said that if you've got one, you're probably blind to it? I think there's three ways to discover if we've got a log. First, pray that God would show you if there are unaddressed sin issues that he wants you to deal with in your life. Because while our own sin may blind us, it doesn't blind God. And God wants us to see our sin accurately and to war with it. So ask what the psalmist asked in Psalm 139. Show me if there be any unclean way in me. Show me my logs. Trust that he will. Second, if God has already shown you specific areas of sin in your life that you've allowed to continue basically unaddressed, sins that you're not warring against, sins that you say, well, I'm, I'm willing to make a home for this sin in my life, then indeed you do have a big beam protruding from your face. Third, if you see sin in someone else and you think, that's not right, let your next thought be, wait, is there some way in which I am currently tolerating this same sin in my life? And if you find that you are, then you've got a beam you need to address. Now, once you know you have a beam, deal with it. How? Confess and forsake your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death what is earthly in you. See, friends, the gospel isn't just about freeing us from the future penalty of sin. It's about freeing us also from the present power of sin. There is power in the cross of Christ that liberates us from bondage to sin. We are not weighed down under a mountain of inescapable evil. We are not so sinful that we must endlessly only look inwards in despair, never able to encourage or admonish others. Because the Holy Spirit gives us power to defeat our sins. Friends, we can throw the log out of our face. Now, this is a lifelong process. We won't achieve total victory over every sin at once. But Jesus doesn't tell us here that we have to be sinlessly perfect to help a brother, only that we've got to deal with the log in our own eye. Where we are currently guilty of tolerating the same sins we see in others, or where we are guilty of large-scale compromise that may be even worse than what we see in others, we've got to judge ourselves first. Judge your own sin. Paul told the Corinthians something similar when they gathered together for communion. They had a lot of logs in their eyes. They were tolerating division. And God was striking some of them with illness and death. And Paul said to them, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And that's the principle. Judge yourself. But that's only the first step. 
Yes, we must judge ourselves. But look at again at verse 5. After we judge ourselves, then Jesus says, Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yes, we are still to make a determination that someone else has sinned. We are to form moral judgments about fellow believers at times. Colossians 3.16 says, Admonish one another, warn one another about sin. Jesus in Matthew 18 tells us sometimes we have to go to a brother and tell him his fault. That's a command of Jesus. Every bit as much as judge not is. But we can do this rightly only after we first deal with our own sin so that we are not in hypocrisy. Now I need to make this point. The only sins that should prevent you from talking to a fellow believer about their sin are sins that you are currently tolerating in your life. There's this idea that if I've ever been guilty of something in the past, then I can't ever talk about that with someone else because that would make me a hypocrite. Friend, the only way that's true is if you have never dealt with that past sin. Think of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a murderer. He was a persecutor. But later in life, he warns that God will condemn murderers and persecutors. Is Paul a hypocrite? No, because God changed him by the gospel. He has been set free from his past sin, and he has confessed and forsaken his sins. Friends, sometimes the very best testimonies that we give or when we go to a brother or sister in the Lord and say, in my life, I have had the same struggle that you've had. And this is how the Lord set me free. That's not hypocrisy. That is a powerful expression of the goodness of God through the gospel. That is the sort of thing that needs to happen in the Christian community. But when we talk with someone else about their sin, how should we do it? We've got to be very careful. Because remember, the way we deal with others is directly related to the way that God will evaluate us. Believing, friends, we don't want to lose rewards by being abusive or harsh or unmerciful or unforgiving. Here are a few thoughts. Number one, we've got to be careful when we talk to a fellow believer about their sin that what we're addressing really is sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 14. Here he, he warns about a situation when people in the church are judging each other about matters that really aren't sins, but which are matters of personal preference. And Christian liberty. And Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? I know in our church, a lot of us are hesitant to want to talk about sin with other people. But sometimes, friends, there are Christians who get really excited about confronting other people. And often these people want to confront folks about matters that really aren't sin. I could tell you some crazy stories. I, I knew a person who wanted to have a massive church discipline case on anyone in their church whose wardrobe she disapproved of. I knew another lady who angrily denounced any woman in the church who used hair color or who cut her hair short or who smoked a cigar. I knew another gal who got really mad about toenail polish. Friends, I tell you, some of these sorts of judgmental people wind up being revealed later as some of the worst hypocrites in the church. The lady who was really against hair coloring was later revealed to be an adultery and not a big deal. Friends, we don't want to be like that. We must not judge one another about things that are not prohibited in the, in the Bible. We must not judge each other's exercise of Christian liberty. If someone is drunk, it's sin. If someone is having a beer at dinner, save your judgment for later, right? If someone is engaging in sexual immorality, it's sin. If somebody's waltzing at a wedding, get over it. Right? Judging a fellow believer 
When they're not actually guilty of sin, Paul says that's despising your brother. That makes you guilty of sin. But if you know that somebody's actually guilty, then yes, you've got to address it with them. And as you do so, don't be arrogant. Don't be mean-spirited or harsh. The Bible warns about this repeatedly. James 4.12 says, There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And this is the point. Yes, there are times we should judge, the Bible says. But remember that you're not the ultimate judge. We're not the Lord. Vengeance is not ours. Rather, Paul tells us how we are to talk about sin in Galatians 6.1. Really important verse, friends. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We're going to address sin in each other's lives. We've got to be gentle. We've got to be humble. Because otherwise, Paul says, we're going to stumble into sin. Either foolish judgmentalism or rank hypocrisy. So admonish gently. But why should we admonish at all? Because we need to restore one another. We want to help one another get back on track. We're not to feel like God's self-righteous police force investigating our fellow believers. This isn't dragnet. Dun, 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 dun. I see you've got sin. No! We do this because we love one another, because we want to guard one another, because we want to show mercy to one another, and we want to get each other ready, because someday we're all going to face the Lord. But be warned, friends. James 2.13 says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Yes, we must address the speck in our brother's eye. Only after we've addressed the log in our own eye. And when we address the speck, we've got to be merciful and not vengeful, or we will be judged. Friends, I also want to say this. We're not just to talk about sin in each other's life. We are to walk alongside our brothers and sisters, praying together and strategizing together. We are to live alongside each other and help each other win these battles. This isn't just a, I yelled at him once thing, right? So yes, sometimes we must judge fellow believers. That's the second type of judgment Jesus here commands us to engage in. We deal with the speck, but we do it kindly and mercifully. But we come now to the third command to judge in this passage. And here Jesus tells us that sometimes we have to form difficult judgments as we deal with unbelievers in this world. Paul just showed us how to talk about sin with fellow believers. What about unbelievers? How do we help them with their sin? Well, Luke 19 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, how did Jesus do that? He died and rose again, right? And what we are to do to help the lost deal with their sin is we've got to give them the gospel. That's the only thing that will help them, right? And we've seen the gospel message begin to go forth already in the gospel of Matthew. In chapter 3, John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ has come. Turn to him in faith. Jesus preached the same message in chapter 4. We'll see in chapter 10, he sends his disciples out to preach it. In the final verses of this book, he sends us out to preach it. Go and make disciples, right? This is how we help unbelievers address their sin. But in the final verse of today's passage, Jesus now gives us a surprising command about our evangelism. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is not an easy verse to understand. We've got to work through this slowly. On the literal level, Jesus is talking about dogs and pigs. And in our society, dogs and pigs are lovely, fun creatures. Little Joshua loves to play with toy pigs. And if you ask him nicely, he might make a pig noise for you today. 
And he likes to cuddle friendly dogs, as many of us do. But in Jesus' day, that's not how people thought about dogs and pigs. Dogs were not domesticated. They were wild and vicious and disgustingly dirty. Solomon says the dogs of his day ate their own vomit. That's gross, right? In the same way pigs were not friendly and cute, they were extremely unclean. So Jesus here talks about animals that are emblematic of uncleanness. What else does Jesus talk about in verse 6? Pearls, valuable jewels, and that which is holy, which is probably a reference to meat that had been sacrificed to God in the temple. And so on the face of it, what Jesus says in verse 6 is, don't give that which is valuable to that which is unclean. You don't feed sacrificial meat to wild dogs. You don't give your best jewels to filthy pigs. Now what are we to take from this? Well, it's pretty clear Jesus has not suddenly switched topics from judgment to animal care. Verse 6 is an allegory. It is a picture that illustrates a spiritual reality that's not being presented in a literal way. The dogs and pigs here aren't dogs and pigs. And Jesus isn't talking about jewelry and food. Okay, so what is Jesus saying? This has been debated since the earliest days of the church, but I'll tell you what I think it means following several commentators. Dogs and pigs are symbols of uncleanness, and they're seen as wretched and disgusting. In the first century, this is how Jews thought about Gentiles. However, the dogs and pigs here are not Gentiles, because we've seen in our early sermons that Jesus has not just come to save the Jews, he's come to save people from every tribe and language and people and nation who believe in Christ, right? He saves believing Gentiles too. So I don't think we should read this as an ethnic distinction. But when Jesus said these words, almost every Gentile was a pagan, an unbeliever. So I think we should understand this first as a reference to unbelievers. I'll say more about that in a minute. Okay, what is it that should not be set before unbelievers? What do the meat and pearls represent? Well, what has Jesus told us to be presenting and proclaiming before people? We just said the answer to that is the gospel. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told us to be salt and light in this world, to maintain our testimony and perform good works so that other people will come to faith in Christ, right? That's how I understand the meat and the pearls. But wait a minute, you might ask. If the dogs and pigs are unbelievers and the pearls and sacrificial meat are the gospel, is Jesus saying don't preach the gospel to unbelievers? Of course not. We just said the gospel is the one way Jesus has told us to help unbelievers with their sin. Who needs the gospel more than unbelievers, right? So Jesus here is not prohibiting us from preaching the gospel to unbelievers. You say, okay, well, what is he doing? Well, look again at verse 6. What is the reaction of the pigs and dogs to the valuable things that are set before them? The pigs trample the pearls underfoot. The dogs turn to attack the person who feeds them the good meat. What Jesus is talking about here are not just unbelievers. He is talking about unbelievers who have a settled opposition and hatred for the gospel. Unbelievers who aren't going to give us an honest hearing if we talk to them about Jesus. Unbelievers who scoff at God's word. Unbelievers who may attack us if we pursue them with Christ. Unbelievers who will trample the gospel underfoot. Who will respond to our evangelism with scoffing and laughing and blasphemy to Christ. These are the pigs and the dogs. These are the people who we are to refrain from casting our pearls before. 
And what I understand this to mean is that these sorts of hostile unbelievers are no longer to be our targets for evangelism. We are to let some people go their own way. Now that might surprise you. You might say, I thought I shouldn't ever give up on anyone. I should keep going after them as long as they're breathing. We often think that because we know and we love the truth that so long as someone's still breathing, there's still hope, right? Even the vilest and most obstinate sinner can turn to Christ and be saved. That is a precious truth. And yet, while that is true, Jesus also tells us there is a time to walk away. Yes, we should give everyone the gospel at least once, usually several times. But there comes a point when Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 10, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Indeed, in chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples about the Pharisees, Let them alone. There comes a time when we have to make that judgment and say, I'm going to discontinue this pursuit. Now, that doesn't mean you should stop desiring to see someone saved. Of course, you should pray for them. Pray for them. They need God to soften their heart. They need God to regenerate them like he did with Paul. But we are not to evangelistically pursue those who have adopted a settled hatred for the gospel. Because Jesus says if you pursue these people, it may intensify their opposition. They may turn to attack you, Jesus says. Now maybe you say, well, I don't care about that. I'm willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Great. But are you willing to see the gospel trampled underfoot? Do you want to give an occasion for Christ to be blasphemed and scorned because you were unwilling to obey this command of Christ? In chapter 6, Jesus tells us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are to pray for God's name to be reverenced in this world. We are to live in a way that reverences God's name in this world. And here Jesus says, Make sure you do not give the enemies of the cross a chance to unhallow God's name and blaspheme Christ and drag his gospel through the dirt. So as we evangelize, sometimes we have to make these difficult judgments. Who we should keep pursuing and who we judge to be a dog or a pig that we must shake the dust from our feet and move on from. And you should never make this decision without a lot, of, a lot of prayer. This is a serious decision. And I want to be clear about this. The only people who we should judge to be the dogs and pigs are those who are settled enemies of the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to make disciples of all nations, from all backgrounds, from people who have committed every form of sin. That's not what we are to judge on. But when we encounter persistent, strident opposition, it's time to move on. That's the point. Now, this may scare you. You may say, how do I know when it's right to follow this command? What if I had kept pursuing this person? Maybe one more try on my part would have made the difference between heaven or hell for them. But friends, this is where it is a blessed thing to trust in the sovereignty of God over salvation. Because he isn't going to lose anybody who is elected. He will save all of his people, and he will use us to do it. And if the person you don't want to give up on is destined to be saved, you can trust that God will get to them through somebody else. But as for you, when you encounter strident opposition to the gospel in an unbeliever, there comes a point where you have to form this judgment and walk away. Now, I think this command is one of the hardest commands in the Bible for some of us to accept because it's so contrary to our expectations. 
And so I want to finish this up with an illustration that shows why we've got to obey this command. I knew a young man once. He actually came to this church a few times uh, years ago. He was a very vigorous evangelist. But he decided the place he wanted to evangelize was right in front of the largest shop selling occult items in Houston. And you might think, well, that's a great place to evangelize. They need the gospel. He stirred up all manner of chaos by doing this. He told me how he would stand out there and yell at everybody with a megaphone the gospel. And they would turn and blaspheme Christ as he did this. And I said to him, you know, Paul didn't go into the temple of Zeus to preach the gospel. Paul didn't go into the witch's coven to evangelize. You are casting your pearls before swine. But he wouldn't listen. And he made a lot of enemies. You might say, well, that always happens if we evangelize. That's true. But these enemies followed him around town. They threatened and harassed his home church. They threatened him. And in the end, nobody got saved. The cause of Christ was publicly denigrated. Churches and Christians got attacked because he thought he knew better than Jesus did about evangelism. He thought he was wiser than the Lord. But friends, Jesus knows best. And he requires that sometimes we form this very sad and very necessary judgment for the sake of protecting the gospel and protecting the people of God. I know I've gone on for a while with this. I know it's warm in here. Let me wrap it up like this. This is such an important issue because so many people misunderstand our text today. Jesus says, judge not. But within six sentences, he tells us there are times we have to form moral judgments about others. Friends, sometimes we need to judge. We should always judge our own sin. Sometimes we've got to judge that a fellow believer is in sin and admonish them for their own good. And sometimes we have to judge that an unbeliever is a dog or a pig and cease our evangelistic pursuit. And so when Jesus says, judge not, we've got to remember, he's telling us to abstain from unrighteous, hypocritical judgments, or else we court God's judgment. Today, if you have never come to Christ, beware, because God is a judge. God will judge you, and there is only one path of salvation, only one way not to have your hypocrisy rebound on your own head and destroy you. Turn to Christ and cast yourself on his deity, death, and resurrection. If you do know Christ today, don't walk in hypocrisy. Be thankful because Christ has paid for your sins. You will not face hell, but live to win rewards and don't throw them away by making these sorts of unrighteous judgments. Instead, judge justly. Let's pray.